Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So there's a kind of resignation, isn't there, I'm hearing. So you resign from mom because she can't be available because of her needs and where she's at, and then dad's not available either. That's my therapist, Carol. We're on a Zoom call. She doesn't know I'm recording her, and that's not her real name, because this is not your average therapy session. So that's quite lonely, isn't it? So that's quite a lonely journey as a child. Pretty standard stuff, you might think. But the reason Carol's asking me about my lonely adolescence is because I've come to her posing as someone struggling with being gay. And I've been told she'll be able to help. Did mum and dad hug you growing up? Were they affectionate? In 2018, the British government made a promise. We want to see an end to practices like conversion therapy, which is an abhorrent practice. But three years on, no such ban exists. I'd walk back alone crying in the darkness. It was just a surge of desperation and devastation. It's the most traumatising thing that you can go through. We need to call it conversion abuse. It's certainly not a therapy. You're listening to Thinking Straight, the first episode in a new seven-part series from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Sargent. Before we begin, a content warning. The following episode explores traumatic experiences and includes references to suicide. I'm a journalist and, as you heard, I'm also a lesbian. I was born in 1988 and grew up in a relatively middle-class family in Birmingham and then Newcastle. Despite growing up in a fairly liberal family, in my younger years I would have done anything to be straight. As a young kid, I was obsessed with every 90s fad going. Tamagotchis, Adidas poppers, Pokemon... I was also a keen disco dancer. My biggest crush, as far as anyone at school knew, was Stephen Gately from Boyzone. His face adorned the walls of my bedroom, dangled from my rucksack on key rings. It was even pritstick to the inside of my filofax. In reality, my first crush was a female SEAL trainer at a Scottish sea life centre with an aggressive buzz cut. I gazed at her longingly aged eight, 
as she flung fish heads into the water. Only 21 years before I was born, in 1967, Parliament decriminalised homosexual acts between consenting adults over the age of 21 and in private. Over 50 years later, the fight for equality in Britain is still ongoing. When I first heard about conversion therapy, I thought trying to change or suppress someone's sexuality or gender identity was already illegal. But despite a 2018 promise from government to ban the practice, it's still taking place in many different forms across Britain. In politics, three years is no time at all. But I've heard from sources that behind the scenes, the government is delaying action on this issue. And I want to know why. And what damage is being done in the meantime. After three years of investigating, I want you to know about it too. So, over the next seven episodes, we'll expose this once secretive practice. You'll hear from experts. I remember thinking about it as being like describing grief to somebody who's never experienced grief. To try and tell you that there's something wrong with who you are. I think that is absolutely criminal. Faith leaders. That's the problem with church. It's a trauma that lives with you. And friends. Oh, I've got to be honest. I have really mixed feelings about you doing this. I'll take you into the heart of the movement that's pushing back against a total ban. That's just a completely unfair accusation. And you'll hear how dangerous it will be if the government gets this wrong. I was completely suicidal. The overwhelming emotion that I remember is utter loneliness. And I'll take you with me undercover. So when you say feelings of attraction towards women, what does that mean? But first, I want to introduce you to Jane. Born in Guernsey to a conservative evangelical Christian family, Jane was one of the first people I contacted when I began investigating this story. How are you? How are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. We met in Manchester two and a half years ago. I travelled there to hear her give a talk on the different forms of conversion therapy still taking place in the UK. She's a well-known figure, a prominent gay evangelical. Until recently, she sat on the government's LGBT advisory panel. She sits on the General Synod. She's the founder of her own charity, the Ozan Foundation. And she chairs the Ban Conversion Therapy Coalition. We've got a really good relationship now, but when I first spoke to Jane, she was a bit of a tough nut to crack. I don't think she'll mind me saying that. Basically, she was just wary of journalists after a couple of bad experiences, and it took some time to win her trust. Which now, knowing the world of conversion therapy as I do, I totally get. Because you're dealing with really traumatised people, and she is the person protecting those people. It was obvious as soon as I met Jane in person, though, that she is an incredibly strong character who cares so deeply about others. She has a presence that immediately makes you feel safe and calm. And her protectiveness comes from first-hand experience. People will come alongside, put their hands on you, start praying in tongues, and then will command 
the devil that they perceive the demon inside you to come out. For Jane, her experience of conversion therapy involved exorcisms. Within the charismatic evangelical church that I come from, exorcisms are seen as really quite standard. Jane was 30 years old when her conversion therapy began. It was 1999 and she just realised she was attracted to women. Her conversion attempts lasted for 10 years, until 2009. They will encourage you often to say a line, something perhaps like, the blood of Jesus sets me free. And you will find yourself trying to say that and then starting to stammer, often because I think of the psychological pressure on you. And the more you struggle to say this, the more you find yourself being encouraged to to choke it up, to sick it up, to sometimes even be sick. I've been violently sick. Again, I think perhaps it was my body recoiling at some of the pressure it was going under. But of course, these rather unusual manifestations will be confirmation to the people praying for you that the devil is indeed inside you, that this is indeed happening. A friend of mine who I loved and trusted had come to pray with me. She had quite a gift, it seemed, at praying for people. And I literally felt she was trying to cast me out of me. It was like the very soul, the very core of me was being told to come out. It can be quite scary. I mean, I've had people who have been shouting at me, thinking that they're shouting at the devil. One guy actually hit me with a Bible. I've heard of others who've sadly been pinned to the floor. You know, it ended me in hospital fighting for my life because my body was so stressed. Sometimes I've been going through this for hours on end to the point that when I've taken a bathroom break, I went and I saw myself in the mirror and I saw that all the blood vessels around my eye sockets had burst. And I mean, I looked, I looked demonic myself. Jane's experience is horrifying, but unfortunately, it's not unique. So all pretty scary stuff that we don't talk about in, you know, good old English cultural classes. But it happens in many charismatic churches, you know, on a Sunday. I held the secret of the fact that I was struggling with my sexuality for nearly 30 years until I ended up in hospital. It's been the source of, sadly, a lot of the conflict for me when I was trying to square my faith and my sexuality. And that led to two major breakdowns and a lot of pain and going through conversion therapy. I think it's a misnomer. We need to call it conversion practice or even conversion abuse. It's certainly not a therapy. I truly thought I was the only gay evangelical in the world. I, I had no knowledge of anybody else who was struggling with what I was going through. And it's that loneliness and solitude that added exponentially to the pain I was going through. In reality, Jane was not alone. Far from being the only gay evangelical, she's also very far from being the only LGBTQ plus person within the broader faith communities of Britain, many of whom have also felt the pressure to suppress their sexuality or gender identity to conform with the teachings of their faith and avoid being cast out of their community. I went through periods, perhaps that would last three months, six months, where I truly thought I was healed. I claimed it, you know, I wanted it so much. And then I would find myself falling for somebody I was working with or 
finding those inner thoughts still taking me back to yearning to be with a woman. And there are a lot of gay evangelical Christians who have married in faith to find that 10, 20, 30 years down the line, they are so deeply unhappy. They know they're living a lie. And the only thing they can do is to come out at great cost to them and, of course, their families for 10 years until I turned 40 and had my second spell in hospital and breakdown and finally came out. So it was 10 years seeking, gosh, around the world, healing and a a way out of the hell that I was in, which was finding that I was attracted to women, which I felt was an abomination and a sin. And it's the long-term impact of carrying that constant sense of who you are is unacceptable, of carrying this huge weight of believing that there is something wrong with you, that there is a reason why you are being attacked by the devil. It is that that really starts to wear at the psyche. You know, people often think, I think, that prayer is, oh, just a nice cup of tea in a few minutes. No, this is long-term psychological abuse of someone. That means every moment of every waking day, you're carrying this terrible weight and making yourself very vulnerable, often with strangers, about the most intimate parts of your life. It is sheer abuse. If you think of conversion therapy as an umbrella term, the definition would boil down to this. It is anything, any practice that seeks to cancel, cure, suppress one's sexual orientation or gender identity. It can happen in medical and mental health settings, but in Britain, the vast majority of conversion therapy takes place in a religious context. Primarily it is about prayer and deliverance and fasting and sadly even through to more violent forms, even corrective rape. It might be obvious to you by this point, but in case it's not, I don't believe you can change your sexuality or gender identity through the power of faith. But to be honest with you, there was a time in my life when I would have found the possibility that you could change your sexuality incredibly compelling. Right up until the point when I came out as a lesbian, age 22, if you told me there was some magical way that I could make myself straight, I wouldn't have hesitated for a second. Like many LGBT plus people, there was a time when I hated a core element of who I was. I don't feel that way now, but I wanted to confirm for sure whether there was any science in the claims of conversion therapists that transformation is possible because there was a lot of earnest emotional testimony from self-described ex-gays online, if you know where to look. It is our vision and mission to raise an army of formerly gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender individuals who want to celebrate their freedom, their transformation and their change. This is one of the many videos posted on Instagram by a group called X Out Loud Europe. The CEO and chairman of X Out Loud is a man named Mike Davidson. Remember that name, it's going to become important later. X Out Loud celebrates the stories of so-called ex-LGBTQ people, many of whom are based in the UK. Can you believe that? 29 testimonies on X Out Loud testifying that change is possible, that we can be freed 
from unwanted sexuality. At least in the scientific community and in the field, I think the consensus around conversion therapy is that it's pointless and psychologically damaging. Dr. Kazi Rahman is an academic at King's College London. I study the biological basis of human sexual orientation. And has been for 20 years. So he really is the expert on sexuality. At the moment, our present understanding of the biological research and even the psychological research in this area, and that ranges from genetic influences to prenatal hormonal involvement, tell us the same message, which is that sexual orientation is innate in humans. And several decades of research on things like learning and socialization and upbringing have turned up nothing. That is to say, sexual orientation develops due to factors beyond an individual's control. So heterosexuality and homosexuality are not conscious choices. Contemporary understandings of sexuality give more space for the idea that sexual orientation can change over a person's lifetime. But what the science shows consistently and clearly is that conversion therapy as a practice to rid someone of same-sex attraction does not work. And in virtually every case, instead causes deep psychological harm. In one recent study from the Ozan Foundation of over 450 people who'd gone through conversion therapy, just 3% of people believed it had worked whereas two-thirds suffered some form of mental health issues ranging from depression to suicidal thoughts. Despite the overwhelming body of evidence, thousands of people in Britain have experienced some form of conversion therapy and the numbers continue to rise. They won't listen to reason, they won't listen to facts. Here's Jane Ozan again. They won't listen to the science. They won't listen to the heart cries of the people whose lives they've ruined. The only thing I think they will perhaps listen to is criminal sanctions against what they're doing. Prime Minister, are you proud of your voting record on gay rights? Look, there are some things that I voted for in the past that I shouldn't have done, and I've said sorry, Section 28. That's Theresa May, back in July 2018, defending her voting record on gay marriage and Section 28. Section 28 was a British law that prohibited the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities up until it was repealed in 2003. It was wrong to put that in place. We should have removed it sooner. But I hope that people will see that the UK has actually changed. At the time this interview was recorded, the Conservative government, then led by Theresa May, released an LGBT agenda formed in response to a government piece of research. We launched an LGBT survey uh, last year, which had over 100,000 responses. Based on what they learned in those responses, they made a promise. We want to see an end to practices like conversion therapy, which is an abhorrent practice. As a Christian yourself, have you ever prayed for anybody to change their sexuality? No, I haven't. Did you know that it went no, on? No, I haven't, and I was shocked that conversion therapy was still going on. I think it is abhorrent. I think it has no place in modern Britain. We are determined as a government to end it. But they haven't, and we don't yet have any clear reason for the three-year delay. So prevalence is really difficult to measure. The only way you could ever do that is to do a census of absolutely everybody to find out where it's happening. The government has its own data from that survey I mentioned earlier of over 100,000 people, the one they did under Theresa May, 
just before announcing plans to ban conversion therapy. Most of whom were LGBT Christians. That survey found that 2%, over 2,000 people, had been through conversion therapy and 5% of people had been offered it. The figures were much higher amongst the trans community. They were double that. This point, that the trans community are subjected to conversion therapy at almost twice the rate of other members of the queer community, is an important one to keep in mind throughout this series, especially because much of the media and political conversation around this topic has focused solely on gay conversion therapy. I'll be coming back to this point again later in the series. That survey was pushed through Stonewall and LGBT Foundation and, you know, great LGBT organisations, but many LGBT people of faith don't often have connections with those and, frankly, you know, a bit wary of being honest in those situations. That's to say that the government study probably not only missed out a big chunk of the population, but crucially, it may have missed out many of those most affected – people who are part of conservative, often isolated faith communities. So, the Ozan Foundation conducted its own study in 2018. We put together a faith and sexuality survey, which had over 4,500 responses, and that managed to identify 468 people who'd been through conversion therapy. Bringing the estimated figure up from 2% of the LGBTQ plus population to 10%. My experience working in this sector, working amongst people of faith who happen to be LGBT, is that the vast majority of them have, at some stage in their life, been prayed for and been told that who they are is unacceptable. And as more of us tell our stories, more people come forward saying, gosh, yes, that happened to me. And I believe that there are tens of thousands of people, if not more, here in Britain who have been through this. We're not just talking a small handful. This has been hidden for so long because people are so ashamed of what they put themselves through. Once they come to a point of acceptance of who they are, they want to leave that all behind and don't really want to talk about it. But we are sitting on a a tsunami of people who've been hurt. In a moment, the history of conversion therapy in the British medical system. But first... Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In Britain alone, there are at least one million men and one million women who are homosexual. Conversion therapy hasn't always existed in the shadows. Between men, it's a crime, rendering the offender liable to several years of imprisonment. It's got a long and colourful history within the British medical establishment. So what's it like then to be a male homosexual in Britain today whose only choice is between a lifetime of complete sexual abstinence or being a criminal? We've had decriminalisation of male same-sex behaviour, and um, this was well before I came to England, but there was still considerable inequality. This is Professor Michael King. He's an emeritus professor at UCL and an expert in the mental health of gay, lesbian and bisexual people, a research interest that began for him during the AIDS epidemic in 1980s Britain. Speaking to Michael, he's exactly what I imagine a stereotypical academic to be like. Thoughtful, wise, and curious about the world. We hoped over the years, because especially with the Equality Act, with equal marriage, that these things would change. But unfortunately, there's been not so good evidence of change. Conversion therapy was once seen as a perfectly legitimate medical process. It was even practised on the NHS until the 1980s. Yeah, the word conversion therapy really only arose with what's called behaviourism in, in psychology and psychiatry, and that was probably the 60s. But attempts to make homosexual people heterosexual long predated that, particularly with psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. And, and that really was the early 20th century. But it wasn't referred to as things like conversion therapy Homosexuality then was seen as a mental disorder, so it was something that needed to be treated. And treatment involved psychotherapy to make someone more heterosexual or uncover the pathology, as they regarded it, behind same-sex attraction. Homosexuality was classified as a mental health disorder by the World Health Organization until 1990. Being transgender remained on the WHO's list of mental disorders until 2019. That kind of pathologising has a long history here in Britain. If you read many of the psychoanalytical writings, right up into the 60s and 70s, they were incredibly hostile to the idea of homosexuality as a normal variation of human sexuality and had all sorts of theories about why men and women um, might turn away from what they regarded as the heterosexual substrate. You know, everybody had this heterosexual substrate. So the idea of perversion from that was very strong in psychoanalysis. In the 1960s, there was a rejection of psychoanalysis in the Western world. And the behaviourists came 
into power, if you like, in the field. And they saw homosexuality as a learned abnormality so that you could unlearn it. It must be in there somewhere. And you just had to reprime yourself. That's around the time that aversion treatment became popular. They were shock treatments, showing pictures of attractive men or women and trying to reward the man to fixate gradually on the pictures of women instead of men using electric shock. So you get a mild electric shock if you persisted looking at the attractive picture of a man and, and, and you got rewarded by no shock if you moved to a woman. Now, it sounds, it sounds very primitive and basic when you hear about it, but this had been used in other fields, not just in the sexual field. The trouble is that the research was so poor. They claimed that this made people heterosexual, but of course, you know, if you were undergoing this, you'd say anything to get out of having these repeated sessions. Before decriminalisation in 1967, British courts were sending men to have aversion therapy treatments. In some cases, the punishment was more severe. The Second World War codebreaker Alan Turing has been granted a posthumous royal pardon. Mr Turing was prosecuted for homosexual activity in 1952, which was illegal at the time. One of the most well-known examples of this kind of prosecution by the British government would be the case of Alan Turing, the founder of computer science, whose face graces the £50 note and whose work was key to breaking the wartime Enigma codes, saving millions of lives. In 1952, Turing was prosecuted for homosexual acts. Instead of a prison sentence, he accepted an alternate treatment, chemical castration. Two years later, at the age of 41, Turing took his own life. The British government didn't issue a public apology until 2009 for the appalling yet not uncommon way that Turing was treated. It took more than half a century for the state to acknowledge the injustice of Dr Turing's conviction for homosexuality. Now, following parliamentary pressure, he's been given a posthumous pardon. The injustice done to him is corrected today. Uh, by his pardon. And I think that is the end of that bit of the story about the um, appalling treatment uh, of gay men. His experience wasn't a niche historical anomaly, instead just one example of a state-authorised policy of persecution. We undertook oral history studies, talking to quite elderly men by this time who'd gone through these early treatments. And most of the vast majority was severely badly affected by it. They didn't change their sexual orientation and they were thoroughly psychologically messed up by it. And that was because it sort of seemed to them that their sexuality was unacceptable, had to be treated in this radical way. And then when it didn't work, because they sincerely believed it might, there was even more demoralisation and, and depression about it. Because aversion therapy's really lost kudos in the 1980s, I would say. And we talked to many of the therapists that gave these treatments, and they would go to conferences, and people would start to shout, Nazi or something, you know, in the middle of the, middle of the conference. These were sort of uh, gay and lesbian activist groups. But they really began to think, hey, you know, are we damaging people? You know, it was really that naive. It took a lot of them quite a while to realise that this wasn't good, and even some of them we interviewed much later on were still convinced that something was needed of this format. They didn't accept homosexuality as a normal 
um, variant of human behaviour and a way of being. But as aversion therapies went out of vogue, other kinds replaced them. Particularly religious and spiritual therapies, which took over in the years 2000s and later, were just as damaging. They were more subtle and they went on a longer time. And these were now people who might have been particularly religious and and the church leaders or the church therapists would promise a sort of salvation. You know, that this wasn't what God wanted, that they could marry and have children and fit in with the situation. And, and many people, you know, wanted to fit in. You know, they didn't like being different to the heterosexual majority. They rejected their own sexuality. The most violent forms of conversion therapy, physical abuse or so-called corrective rape, are already illegal in the UK. But conversion therapy has persisted underground, especially in its most subtle and insidious forms. The kind that happens most commonly across Britain is a type of prayer-based pseudoscientific therapy. The tools and language of legitimate talk therapy have been appropriated for the purpose of curing homosexuality or curing being transgender. It's this kind of conversion therapy that I've been investigating for the past three years. When we went into lockdown, I assumed, maybe naively, that the world of conversion therapy would shut down. But actually, it seems to be thriving. Good morning. It's very good to uh, have you here today. If you've come along to uh, session four of Live with Mike, I'm... Live with Mike is a YouTube series by Mike Davidson. Remember Mike from earlier? He runs X Out Loud. He also runs the Northern Ireland-based Christian organisation Core Issues Trust. In this video, he appears to be sitting in a nondescript home office, white walls, a bookshelf in the background. He's got glasses, grey hair, looks kind of harmless until you pay attention to what he's actually saying. I'm hoping that we will have a good time as we get further into the issues that relate to unwanted same-sex attraction. Mike Davidson says he successfully overcame his attraction to men. When it comes to linking young, confused, even anguished LGBTQ plus people with conversion therapists who claim to be able to help, Mike is something of an expert. Many of the survivors I spoke to suffered conversion therapy on the most extreme end of the spectrum, like Jane's violent exorcisms. But this other, more subtle and insidious form of abuse is so hard to investigate. How does it work? What techniques are used? What does it feel like? And how easy is it to access? I felt there was only one way to find out for sure, by experiencing it myself. So, sitting on my bedroom floor, taking a few deep breaths with no idea how this might go, I gave Mike Davidson a call. I don't know a lot about your organization, but I wondered whether I'm just looking for some support, if I can find any, that might be nearby in London. Certainly. Hi. Well done. Got there eventually. You would think after a year. We have these technical problems sometimes. 
This is Carol. Mike Davidson gave me her contact details and suggested I get in touch with her directly. She's not affiliated with Core Issues Trust and she is a qualified counsellor. What she offers is talk therapy. Carol is a middle-aged, middle-class woman. She seems cheerful and welcoming. And her newest patient is me. Yeah, I've done quite a lot of training in same-sex attraction stuff just through, you know, people that I've met. I decided the best strategy would be to stick as close to the truth as possible. So I settled on a younger version of myself, a person who would have willingly, gratefully walked into that room with Carol, placing all of my trust and hope into her professional hands. Because although many assume it's easy to come out these days, it's still not for a lot of people. I was a depressed and, on several occasions, suicidal teenager who faked my way through straight relationships and life in general with the help of drink and drugs. And Carol would have been my ticket to a happy future, as far as I was concerned. So, I developed a routine to get me in the right headspace. I took off my jewellery, wiped off my makeup, put on a baggy t-shirt, opened Zoom, and secretly hit record. Well, nice to meet you. Yeah, very nice to meet you. So do you know Mike then? Next episode on Thinking Straight. I don't know if you know much about it, but it is quite controversial, the conversion therapy stuff. If you're open, I think it would be good to explore it as a possibility. In response to this investigation, Carol said, I have never held myself out as a provider of, nor do I offer counselling to any client with the aim to change their sexuality. To the best of my knowledge, there are no UK therapists who have ever described themselves as conversion therapists. The term conversion therapy is an imposed term, is misleading and forces an implied definition of conversion. I took quote-unquote, Rachel, at her word and sought to serve her in a bid to help her come to terms with her true self. You've been listening to Thinking Straight, a podcast series brought to you by subscribers to The Times and Sunday Times. I'm journalist Emily Sargent. The producer of this series is Leona Hamid, the series is made in collaboration with Story Hunter. The executive producer for Story Hunter is Kirsty Hunter. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Poppy Damon. Sound design is by Vulcan Kizzeltook. The next episode of Thinking Straight will be in the Stories of Our Times feed next Friday. If you've been affected by any of the issues in today's episode, you can contact Samaritans on 116123 or Switchboard, the LGBT helpline on 03000330630, open from 10am until 10pm every day. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, 
or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.